0: Thanks, Brian. Well, today we're continuing our sermon series that we've entitled Alive and Well. We're considering some of the core relationships in our lives and how we can thrive in those relationships. And so we've looked at a number of things. We've looked at parenting, looked at marriage, we've considered singleness. Uh, beginning next week, we're going to take two weeks to talk about friendships, uh, how to pursue healthy uh, friendships. Friendships. Uh, We're going to spend the last week talking about relationships in the body of Christ. But today we're going to discuss a reality that really has relevance for all of these relationships. And this is the way I would would put it. Uh, Both Scripture and experience confirm that you and I, we have limited control over the health of our relationships. We really do. We are not in control of anything everything to do with our relationships. And so it's not that we're helpless. That's what this series is about. There are many things that we can do that will promote healthy relationships. But ultimately, uh, very few things are within our control. You've probably noticed that, right? You can't control how somebody else will respond to you. You can't muscle a relationship and make it healthy. And so understanding that we have limited control over the health of our relationships, ultimately, it shouldn't make us panic. Uh, this is not bad news. If you're in a relationship with God, this can be good news. It can, you can exhale. You can relax. You're not God. And so that's what we're going to talk about. But we're going to look at first uh, just a couple of examples of believers, mature, committed. Spirit-filled believers who experienced conflict or disagreement in relationships that were not easily resolved or not resolved at all. The first is in Acts fifteen. It's the example of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, They they were missionaries. They had they had gone off and they had won people to Christ. They had planted churches all across Asia Minor. They came back to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council took place where they basically decided you don't have to be a good Jew to be a good Christian, you don't have to follow the law if you want to follow Christ. And uh, we pick it up, the, the narrative in, in uh, Acts 15, 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And so that was the pattern. They would go back to the churches they had started and they would encourage the believers there and uh, and continue investing in their lives 37 Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. If you look back in Acts 13:13, 13, 13, uh, Luke records, Luke wrote the book of Acts, he records that while they were on this first missionary journey that John Mark left. He went home. We aren't told why. We don't know if he got sick, we don't know if he was afraid, we don't know if he was homesick. We just don't know why he went home. But here in Acts 15, we find out that because John didn't complete that previous journey, Paul didn't want him to join them. On the next journey, verse 39, And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Paul and Barnabas, they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord." And so Paul and Barnabas, if you know anything about them, they had this long, tender relationship. Barnabas was already a believer, and he was one of the, the main people that believed in Paul. He introduced him to the church at Jerusalem. He said, I know he, killed, he, he was there when Christians were killed, but he's for us now. He, he introduced Paul into the fellowship. But we read here they had such a sharp disagreement over John Mark that they separated from one another. And we aren't told who was right and who was wrong. But what's clear is that Paul could not control Barnabas. He couldn't convince Barnabas he was right. Barnabas couldn't convince Paul that he was right. And so neither was able to convince the other. So they reached this impasse. And so Barnabas took Mark with him to Cyprus, and Paul took Silas with him to visit established churches in Asia Minor. Isn't it fascinating that the New Testament didn't try to cover that up and, and sanitize what happened in the early church. The next example is Philippians 4. Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. It was one of the healthiest churches that they had planted. We read this in Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved and, I, and he says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. So these are two women in the church at Philippi. And imagine this, this letter being read out loud, probably on the Lord's Day on Sunday. And Paul says, okay, I, wanted to let, I want to urge the two of you to get along. He says, uh, I urge you... Uh, to live in harmony could be translated, be of the same mind in the Lord. Apparently, they were odds, at, at odds with each other about their thinking on something. But Notice how Paul solicits help from one of his trusted companions there. He says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. And so we learn here that these two women were not immature; they were not uncommitted. No, they were valuable partners with Paul in the gospel, and yet they had this—they had this—they were valuable for the cause of Christ, and yet they needed help living in unity. Uh, and this example confirms that even valuable, growing, maturing believers may be especially valuable. Maturing believers have a hard time getting along sometimes. Sometimes they're at an impasse. They need the help of the body of Christ. And Paul might have had Barnabas in mind as he wrote these verses. And so those are two examples that get our attention. There's a passage that can help us think about difficult relationships. And uh, one passage is Romans 12. And Paul's writing about various relationships in the church And in the last half of Romans 12, I want to pick up Paul's train of thought in verse 17. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Look at verse 18. It's so very insightful and it's so very nuanced. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You see how Paul acknowledges that it's not always possible to be at peace with everybody. And so he says, if possible, be at peace with everyone. So do everything within your power to mend and restore relationships. Now, if you do this, you are taking a risk because some people will reject your overtures. They will say, thanks But no thanks. I have no interest in reconciling with you. I have no interest in in expending the energy to make this relationship right. Several years ago, I ran across a word in 2 Timothy 3.3 that kind of stopped me in my tracks. Paul is describing what is true of people who are, are rebelling against God, who don't have the spirit of God. And he uses all these terms to describe them. And one term he uses is irreconcilable. Some people are irreconcilable. They are unable or unwilling to reconcile with you. And so that's the reality. Sadly, sometimes it's not possible to be at peace with some people. Paul also acknowledges that in relationships, not everything depends on you. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. And so in other words, uh, let it not be said that you are the reason that you are at odds with someone. You are the reason that you are estranged from someone because you won't listen. You won't humble yourself. You won't forgive someone who is truly repentant. Think of a verse like, like uh, Luke 17, 3 that says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Someone repents. God forgave us. We forgive, we forgive others. And so this verse doesn't give us permission to dismiss people or to easily write people off and say, I've tried, not my problem anymore. Uh, The scriptures place this high value on reconciliation. But this, this passage does acknowledge that we have limited control to fix relationships. Other people have freedom. Other people have a will and it's actually part of respecting the the image of God within them to acknowledge that and respect that. Uh, Like what Larry Osborne says, I think it applies here. Larry Osborne says that God is omni-everything. We are omni-nothing. We are not all-powerful. We don't have all the power in the world to make every relationship right. And even God who is all-powerful gives people a degree of freedom to decide whether or not they want a relationship with him. God doesn't coerce and muscle everyone. He, doesn't, he, does, he gives us this freedom. Here's a relationship with me. I offer it to you freely if you will accept it. And when you think about it, some of the most spiritual-minded mature people in the Bible had relational conflicts that were beyond their control. We've seen Paul and Barnabas. Again, they they couldn't fix that issue. We do have evidence by the end of his life, uh, Paul had reconciled with Mark, though. Think about David, a man after God's own heart. He had a son, Absalom, who wanted to kill him, who wanted to take his throne. And, of course, Jesus had this disciple named Judas. They did not reconcile. Jesus did everything in a godly, forthright manner he was not reconciled to Judas. And so all of this suggests that we have limited control over the health of our core relationships. And so, for example, I am responsible to be a faithful husband to Brenda, a good father to my kids, to be a faithful pastor in this church. I am responsible to be a good friend I'm responsible to be a good brother in Christ, but that doesn't mean I can control the outcome in all of those relationships. My wife, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, they also have a will. They also have responsibility. They also have freedom to follow God or not. And so they have to do their part as well. You know, there's a category that might be helpful to think about, and it's, it's the idea that we need to have appropriate boundaries. And the term boundary, as we're using it here, is not actually found in the Bible, but the concept is very biblical. And simply put, a boundary delineates when one thing stops and another begins. And in all different areas of life, if you're unclear or unwilling to respect boundaries, it causes all sorts of problems. Like the boundary between my yard and my neighbor's yard is really important. And so if I don't respect that boundary, I look over there and I say, Tom, I'm not really, I'm not really excited about the color you painted your house. And so I just go over one afternoon <laughs> and paint that, that blue, uh, blue side of his house gray because I like that. That's going to be a problem that's disrespectful uh, that violates a boundary that is there. a similar thing is true concerning boundaries in relationships. If I don't understand where my responsibility ends and someone else's responsibility begins then I, I will I will cause all sorts of trouble and I will experience all sorts of trouble. And so for example, if a person doesn't understand the boundaries implicit in Romans 12, 18, it's not always possible to reconcile. It doesn't all depend on me. If a person doesn't understand that, that person might think, well, I'm not spiritual enough. The reason this relationship isn't working is because I'm not spiritual enough. I'm a failure. I always screw up everything in my life and there could be this self-condemnation. Or a person might go the other direction and say, well, I've done everything. The problem is the other person. You can be con- condemning and judgmental. And so that boundary is, is important. If you accept the boundaries implicit in Romans 12, 18, you will think something like, I am, I am responsible to pursue reconciliation with other people. It is my job, my responsibility to walk with God and to to be kind and be the person I'm supposed to be. But peace is not always possible, and everything doesn't depend on me. It's healthy to think that way. It's biblical to think that way. It doesn't mean you give up. It doesn't mean you, you have no responsibility. You can still pray. You can still be kind somebody told me in the four-year, if you can't be kind, be vague, okay? So, there's, there's all sorts of things that you can do in relationships, but you don't have to feel like a complete failure when everything isn't fixed. And so, there's great freedom in realizing I'm not God. He doesn't expect me to fix and control every relationship. And so, that's God's design. And so, we have limited control over the health, over the health of our relationships, uh, what can we control? What, what is in our, our control by God's grace, with God's help? What should we focus on? Well, we're going to talk about two things we should focus on. And as we do, I would encourage you to think about a core relationship in your life, okay? So it could be a relationship that's healthy basically healthy and you want to see it healthier or it could be a relationship that's strained and it's in trouble and you really need to see some uh, a different whole different uh, dynamic in that relationship it could be in your family it could be in the church could be in your neighborhood could be in the workplace but as we talk about focusing or paying attention to the things under our control uh, keep that relationship in mind First thing, pay attention to your words. Pay attention to your words. Many scriptures make clear that we are responsible for every word we speak. Jesus said that, that we are accountable for every careless word that we speak. I really have no idea what, that, what the implications of that are, but I believe him. We are far too easy to excuse our words and justify our words. Well, the reason I got angry is because you're so annoying. Or the reason why I'm not gracious is because I'm right and you're wrong. Okay? So we can justify our, our sinful or careless words in all sorts of different ways. And it's, but it's really hard to overstate the importance of our words. The words that come out of our mouth, our mouths either make or break. The core relationships in our lives. James 3 is a passage that that stresses how destructive our words can be. We'll also look at some passages that talk about how healing and how nourishing our words can be. But James 3 is is a, a chapter that warns us about our words. If we aren't, if we're walking according to the flesh, in other words, if we're just doing what comes natural, if we're being our sinful selves, Our words can cause more destruction than we ever imagined. I'll just read this and make a couple comments. This is James 3, beginning in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. James is saying that if we are not careful with the words we speak, we can inject deadly poison into the core relationships in our lives. Our tongues will be an expression of hell instead of heaven, instruments of unrighteousness instead of righteousness. Apart from the grace of God, no one can tame the tongue. Therefore, in our core relationships, we'd be very wise to pay attention to the words that we speak, what we say and how we say it. Scripture talks about both of those things. One core passage is Ephesians 4.29. It says this, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The word unwholesome could be translated rotten, just like you wouldn't want to knowingly put something rotten in your mouth you shouldn't let anything rotten come out of your mouth. Elizabeth Elliot used to say you should taste your words before you speak them. Make sure that they're they're uh, appropriate. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. He says not only what not to say, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who to those who hear. And so Paul says we need to limit our words. He says, only such words. And I didn't grow up this way, okay? I did not grow up using words this way. But this is a vision. Words have a purpose. He says, limit our words to only those words that are good for edification. Only those words that build other people up. Only words that are helpful for the well-being of those around us. And Paul clarifies further when he says, according to the need of the moment. Now, isn't that a radical idea? Instead of saying, well, I'm going to just say the first word that comes to my mind. I have so many regrets, honestly. Think back about my life because I've just said what what I thought. But he says, no, limit your words to those that address the need of the moment. Imagine that, going through your day, asking the question, what is the need in this other person's life and so this is a very others centered really a god centered way of thinking about your words what is the need is the need for comfort is the need for correction is the need for for encouragement is it counsel and you speak only that that word and he further clarifies when he says that it may give grace to those who hear and so we give gifts with our words Somebody comes away from a conversation with you and it's like they're, just, it's like they're carrying this armful of gifts. It's just been that good. You're giving to them instead of taking from them. Instead of them feeling a little closer to death, they're feeling a little more alive by the words that you've spoken. And so just like we work, one reason is to earn money so that we can give to people who have needs. One of the reasons we speak is so that we can meet the need of the moment. And so again, I'm guessing that I I didn't grow up using words this way. Chances are you didn't either. Maybe you grew up using words to insult people or to impress people or you use words to manipulate people. And so this is going to be very counterintuitive to you. It's going to require a, a radical change. And so how can you change your words Well, I think you'll agree with me. It's not just memorizing some stock phrases that you can pull out and vocalize in the appropriate situation. Now, actually, uh, Scripture says that if you want to change your words, you need to pay attention to your heart. Words come from the heart. Jesus makes this connection in uh, several places. One of them is Luke six. 45, he says this, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks that which fills his heart. Our words are an expression of our hearts. And so if you wanna be able to give life to your friends and your family and your coworker, Your heart needs to be full of life. Uh, Just as a pear tree cannot, it's not that it doesn't often, but it cannot produce apples, if your heart is full of anger, bitterness, judgmentalism, jealousy, malice, you cannot speak words that are gracious and nourishing to the people around you. you. You can speak them sarcastically or you can vocalize them, but you can't speak them in a way that really nourishes people. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Proverbs four twenty three makes a very similar point. It says, "Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it, from your heart flows uh, for from from, for from it flow the springs of life." And if you read the surrounding verses in Proverbs four verses twenty through twenty seven. Uh, You'll see that the dad is telling the son, pay attention to the members of your body. Pay attention to your eyes, what you look at. Pay attention to your ears, what you hear. Pay attention to your mouth, what you speak. Pay attention to your feet, where you actually go. And then he says in that, that context, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The NIV translates the last half of that verse, for everything you do flows from it. And so our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our feet, they're all influenced by the heart. They, They carry out the heart as the command and control center of a person's life. The rest of our body obeys our hearts. And so since our thoughts and our words and our actions flow from our hearts, since we live from the heart, we would be foolish not to watch over our hearts with all diligence. So we should notice when our hearts are full of anger or apathy. We should notice when our hearts are full of pride or self-loathing. And if you want to know what's in your heart, just notice what you think. What What are you obsessed with? What are the thoughts that fill your mind? That will give you an accurate indicator of what's in your heart. And so uh, whatever fills our hearts will eventually spill out into the core relationships of our lives. So think about that relationship that you identified earlier, that relationship that you want to be healthier. So notice your words toward that person. Notice your thoughts toward that person. If you're angry with that person, your anger will show up in your words and your actions. It may look like sarcasm or criticism or frustration, or it may be the silent treatment, but it will show up. And so we just have to make peace with this fact. I can't murder somebody in my heart all day long and expect to have a healthy relationship with that person. I live from my heart. Whatever fills my heart will show up in my words, my actions, my emotions toward that person. And since we're often... Oblivious to the condition of our hearts, David's prayer in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 is is so wise. Most of you are familiar with this. But after David rehearses how God has this exhaustive knowledge of him, there's nothing hidden from God. He can't hide from God anywhere. He prays this, "'Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts.'" And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And so God knew these things. But he's saying, God, I invite you to reveal to me what's the anxiety in my life. You know, you have to identify those anxieties. You have to know the hurtful ways, the things you're doing that are hurtful to you and hurtful to other people. And so he invites God, reveal this to me. And then he says, lead me in the everlasting way. So he invites God to lead him, to to give him different patterns of thinking and living. And so in the core relationships of our lives, one of the best gifts you can give people is to pray this prayer honestly and with integrity. One of the best gifts you can give is to invite God to, to do this work in your heart. It doesn't guarantee a healthy relationship, but it puts you in a place, it positions you to have a a healthy relationship. And so what you're saying is, as far as it depends upon me, it doesn't all depend upon me, but as far as it depends upon me, God, I want to walk with you. I want to be right with you. And therefore, I want to be right with the other people in my life. And so you don't have control over the other person. You don't have control over his or her response. But you do have say over your heart, and over your words. And so I want us to pray, and I don't know what this is, has prompted within you, but chances are, in light of something that, that we talked about here, uh, you need to have a conversation with God about your own heart, about your own boundaries, about your own words, about your expectations. And so I'd like for you to, to bow your head, if you would, Again, this is a, a, this is a few moments to talk with God. You'll want to continue this conversation later. But express to him whatever is needed. Perhaps you've realized that you've been pray, playing God in relationships. Perhaps you've been trying to control others and bend them to your will. And so maybe you need to release control to God. Maybe you realize that you've not respected others' boundaries or perhaps you've not asked others to respect your boundaries. There's all sorts of chaos in your life as a result. I dare say that all of us need to talk to God about our words and therefore the condition of our hearts. If you're willing and if you want it, pray David's prayer in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Oh God, we humbly acknowledge here today that we are not God, but you are. We are not sovereign, but you are. We're not powerful, but you are. And that's our only hope in these relationships, the ones that are healthy and the ones that are strained. So God, refine our thinking, refine our understanding, give us a peace and even a joy about our limitations. We thank you that we are not God, that we are not all-powerful. God, teach us to trust you. Teach us to allow you to show us what's in our hearts. Refine us, God, and lead us in the everlasting ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.